Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer, Fred, Fred Hoffman. Farmers across the United States will be paying attention to the opening of talks to revise the North American Free Trade Agreement this week. Of particular concern to California agriculture, will some of the state's biggest farm export products, including wine and dairy, get a fair deal in any new NAFTA agreement? We take an in-depth look at the upcoming NAFTA negotiations. Also, California rice growers are eyeing a big new market, China. The Sacramento Valley processing tomato harvest has begun, maybe a bit late, but it's looking good. And we talk with Dr. Jeff Mitchell of the UC Kearney Agricultural Center. We focus on soil and water management tips for vegetable production systems throughout California. We have all that, crop reports, and more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. There's no question trade agreements are not easy, and the North American Free Trade Agreement is up for discussion again in mid-August. Though they address many industries, the impact of U.S. agriculture is particularly important since farm commodities and products represent a positive trade balance with many nations. According to the Capital Press, the results of NAFTA, which have been in effect for 23 years, have had mixed results. It has benefited some commodities the U.S. sells to one trade partner, but her trade with the other partner in the deal. Dairy exports, for example, have had mixed results. Tom Vilsack, president and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council and the past commissioner of the USDA, says the export of dairy products to Mexico since 1995 has increased tenfold. By any measure, that makes Mexico the most important export market for U.S. dairy farmers. However, dairy exports to Canada have struggled under NAFTA. Canadian regulators have effectively cut many U.S. producers out of that market. Other ag commodities that have had mixed results under NAFTA include apples, potatoes, wine, lumber, sugar, and wheat. They've all encountered trade problems with either Mexico or Canada or both. One of the big winners, though, has been the U.S. beef industry. It's perhaps unique in that it has thrived under NAFTA in both Mexico and Canada. And that success needs to be considered and preserved as those negotiations open talks later this week. But for a lot of farmers, all that progress that has been made under NAFTA in the past years, they hope it's not lost in any sort of new shuffle. The Obama administration's chief trade negotiator for agriculture says President Trump's focus on reducing trade deficits through NAFTA is misguided. The Capitol Press reports that Darcy Vetter, who was the chief U.S. ag negotiator from 2014 until January, told delegates at the U.S. Grain Council's annual meeting that using NAFTA to close trade gaps with Canada and Mexico could entangle farm products in broad disputes. Chad Smith of the American Farm Bureau Federation has more of the ag perspective of NAFTA. As the administration begins negotiations to update NAFTA, Nebraska Farm Bureau President Steve Nelson, a member of the AFBF Trade Advisory Committee, says the administration's objectives will maintain and build on the gains NAFTA has brought U.S. agriculture. NAFTA has been very beneficial to farmers and ranchers across the country and in Nebraska as well. We've seen uh, annual exports to Mexico and Canada grow from approximately $8.9 billion in 1993 to over $38 billion in 2016. So that really tells a big story about how important this uh, trade agreement has been for producers all across the United States. While the agreement has been an overall boon to U.S. agriculture, Nelson says that modernizing NAFTA 
could address some issues for farmers and ranchers. Continued elimination of some of the tariffs, particularly as it relates to Canada on dairy, poultry, and eggs, would be an area that we would like to uh, look at. We'd also like to take a look at some of the areas that relate to geographical indicators and biotechnology uh, that could be revised in the NAFTA agreement. There's a lot of things that have changed in the last 20 years, uh, particularly as it relates to new technologies. And so we need to make sure that the trade agreement takes those kinds of things into consideration. Nelson says when barriers are removed and the playing field is leveled on both sides of the borders, trade improves and each country involved benefits. That's really what we want to continue to see in the future is, is a trade agreement that is good for both sides. So we will continue as we work with the negotiators and as we work with the administration to take another look at NAFTA that we may make sure that we protect the good things that we have in NAFTA and look at those things that we can improve to make NAFTA a better trade agreement. Chad Smith, Washington. We are days away from the start of the first round of renegotiations of the North American Free Trade Agreement. And the U.S. Trade Representative's Office and U.S. negotiators have a list of objectives in modernizing this over three-decade-old trade deal with Canada and Mexico. The diverse farm and food sectors have voiced their opinions over the last few weeks what objectives for NAFTA renegotiation should be for agriculture, with the primary consideration being... Please do no harm. Do no harm. Do no harm. Do no harm to U.S. agriculture. In the significant gains ag as a whole has made in terms of exports to Canada and Mexico. Yet there are some areas where farm and food leaders say modernization is needed. I'm Rod Bay. And a look at agricultural objectives for a modernized NAFTA. That's the subject of this edition of Agriculture USA. As part of the upcoming renegotiations of the North American Free Trade Agreement, the U.S. Trade Representative's Office announced last month the objectives the United States will pursue in its talks with Canada and Mexico. This specific list is a product of weeks of input from all stakeholders at NAFTA, including representatives from the farm and food industries. So what are some of the U.S. agricultural objectives connected to NAFTA renegotiation? First and foremost, maintaining existing reciprocal duty-free market access for ag goods. After all, according to Colorado Farm Bureau Federation President Don Shawcroft, agriculture is perhaps the U.S. industry that has benefited most from NAFTA. A very significant increase of trade of U.S. agricultural products to Canada and Mexico, more than quadrupling the $8.9 billion in 1993 to $38.1 billion in 2016. That is overwhelming beneficial trade for the vast majority of U.S. farmers and ranchers and associated industries. Yet there are some specific commodities that have faced challenges, both from a market access and a competition standpoint during NAFTA. For example, specialty crops. So Reggie Brown of the Florida Tomato Growers Exchange notes some of the positives for his industry within the U.S. NAFTA renegotiation objectives. The objectives of the administration on improving the trade balance and reducing trade deficit within the NAFTA countries is a very positive one for us. We would like to see the trade laws in the United States, as does the administration for anti-dumping and countervailing duty and safeguards being strongly enforced. Many farm and food representatives agree with negotiation objectives that seek to eliminate non-tariff barriers, such as sanitary and phytosanitary measures, and technical barriers to trade. Ag industry representatives William Westman of the North American Meat Institute and Ben Connor of U.S. Wheat Associates discuss SPS and TBTs in the NAFTA renegotiation framework from objectives such as sound science 
and quicker response and resolution of such issues. Adopt expanded WTOSPS standards to include creation of a rapid response mechanism, including tighter standards and deadlines for adverse import barriers. Enhanced enforcement mechanisms for unjustified SPS barriers. Mitigate, eliminate technical barriers to trade to prevent non-tariff barriers that lack scientific merit. With three countries that are relatively pro-trade, pro-science, we should take the opportunity to get the best rules that we can. Equivalence agreements, simultaneous approvals, standardized approval criteria could all help improve the trade facilitation framework around SPS concerns. Melissa San Miguel of the Grocery Manufacturers Association notes how objectives include the aligning and streamlining of various rules and regulations for a modernized NAFTA. The United States should pursue all opportunities in NAFTA to concretely align regulations among the United States, Canada, and Mexico to decrease the costs associated with unnecessary regulatory differences. The agreement should include commitments to implement the highest standards for good regulatory practice and should advance regulatory coherence and cooperation. Perhaps the greatest objective for the U.S. ag sector within NAFTA renegotiations, although not specifically stated, is summed up in a common mantra of do no harm. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue explains it's not just about the increased exports and market access the current NAFTA has provided most of agriculture. In many trade renegotiations or trade negotiations, the anxiety of our producers is that agriculture is always used as a retaliatory measure. Compared to other sectors of a trade agreement, such as manufacturing, intellectual properties, or telecommunications, he is among those explaining to negotiators and the general public how the gains American agriculture has made through NAFTA has benefited other sectors of the U.S. economy, like manufacturing. Because of agricultural products and value-added products, that creates manufacturing jobs. This has been Agriculture USA. A broadband reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California crop report. Corn and sorghum for silage is being cultivated and irrigated. The corn silage crop is in various stages of development from tassels to developing ears. Cotton continues to be irrigated, cultivated, and is growing well. Cotton is blooming and forming bowls. Black-eyed beans continue to be irrigated and cultivated. Mid-season peaches, nectarines, and plums continue to be harvested and packed. Summer pruning and topping of harvested stone fruit groves is ongoing. Asian pears were being packed and exported. The table grape harvest continues with grapes packed and shipped to foreign markets. Valencia orange harvest is ongoing, primarily for the domestic market. Regreening continues to be a problem in citrus due to the high temperatures. Valencia oranges, Meyer lemons, variegated lemons, and finger limes are being harvested, packed, and shipped to foreign markets. Olives are continuing to develop. In San Joaquin County, almond orchard ground pep is ongoing for the upcoming harvest. Almond hole split is underway. In Tulare County, last season's almonds and pistachios were being packed and exported. Walnut, almond, and pistachio orchards continue to be irrigated. In Calusa County, temperatures came down to the mid to high 90s. That provided a break from the triple-digit heat recorded previously. Processing tomato harvest is ongoing and quality is reported to be good. In Yolo County, the processing tomato harvest is underway. In San Joaquin County, harvest continues for cucumbers, honeydew melons, watermelons, cantaloupes, bell peppers, and sweet corn. In Monterey County, the Salinas Valley was in a flurry with harvesting and shipping trucks. All commodities were in production. Market prices were holding steady at baseline costs. 
Warm weather promoted seed stem and decay in iceberg lettuce, negatively affecting quality. In Fresno County, the harvest continues for onions and tomatoes. The carrot harvest was about half completed. Quality was reported as good, though yields were lower than expected. Additional carrot planting is expected to start soon. Yellow peppers were prepared for harvest. In Tulare County, tomatoes, cucumbers, squash, and peppers were picked by certified producers and sold at the local farmers' markets. Yellow squash, zucchini, eggplant, bell peppers, green chili peppers and cucumbers were harvested and shipped domestically. Sweet corn harvest continues and was sold at roadside stands as well as local farmers markets. Melons were irrigated and prepped for the upcoming harvest. In Kings County, the tomato harvest continues with a decent harvest reported. Non-irrigated pasture and rangeland quality continued to decline as condition reports across the state shifted into more poor and very poor categories. Supplemental feeding increased as the nutritional quality of grasses diminished. Sheep grazed on retired pasture as well as dormant alfalfa. The bees were active in melon and sunflower fields. Having problems finding the KSTE Farm Hour podcast? You are not alone. The best bet? Resubscribe through your favorite third-party podcast aggregator. Do a search for the term KSTE Farm Hour. Also, you can listen to the podcast via the iHeartRadio app or the KSTE.com website. The promise of new markets in China encourages California's rice farmers. A trade agreement allowed American rice to enter China, and California farmers say they may be uniquely suited to fit the market. For one thing, California is a lot closer to China than other rice-growing regions in the United States. In addition, California farms specialize in growing high-quality medium-grain rice that could fill a market niche in China. There's a myriad of reasons why farmers in the Sacramento Valley may not have planted their full allotment of rice this year. And rice grower Peter Rystrom shares how he's moving levees in a field that he didn't plant this year in order to make it more efficient in the future. So we are standing out here by a field that we were not able to plant this spring. So to take advantage of it being dry, we are going to do a leveling project out here. We just started yesterday. These big tractors and, and uh, buckets behind them will just pick up dirt from one side, carry it all the way to the other side of the field and drop it. Um, we're turning levees from diagonal to straight east and west, which will make it way more efficient and uh, just a little more fun for us to irrigate every summer and grow rice in. You'll see a little difference for a couple years in the cut and the fill, but eventually it's going to be beautiful. Acreage may be down, but sales are up. Reported export sales through early May of medium grain rough brown and milled rice, which is primarily grown here in California, are up 26%. Ah, the theme from the 1978 Superman movie in which arch-villain Lex Luthor, played by Gene Hackman, explains the reason for his plan to create an earthquake, sink the West Coast into the ocean, but not before buying all the land along what would be the new West Coast, his West Coast. Stocks may rise and fall. Utilities and transportation systems may collapse. People are no good. But they will always need land, and they'll pay through the nose to get it. Which may or may not have anything to do with what's going on with the value of farmland. With farm incomes and commodity prices still falling, you would expect to see farmland values falling as well. But a new USDA report says... Land prices have held in there. USDA Outlook Board Chairman Seth Meyer. Now, these numbers we are giving are national average numbers. The report says U.S. cropland is averaging this year the same as last year's $4,090 an acre. Now, yes, in the drought-stricken northern plains, average cropland values are down by 
4.5% from 2016, but cropland is gaining value in the southern plains, 6% up. Looking at pastures, the average U.S. value of pasture lands up by $20 an acre, about 1.5% increase from 2016. And turning to farm real estate values. Up a little over 2% for all land, but that's also, you know, land in buildings. That's all farmland for all purposes. The U.S. average price in that category is $3,080 an acre, so that's up $70 an acre from last year. Again, the dry northern plains region seeing an almost 2% drop in the value of farm real estate. Again, though, overall, U.S. farm real estate still increasing a little bit in value. Meyer says it seems landowners are holding on to that farmland and not much sales action. If folks think that this downturn is just a temporary softness, then you don't want to put your land out there unless you absolutely have to. And so, overall, farm real estate is gaining value. Cropland values compared to last year. Not much change. But, Seth Meyer told us, we're starting to see the results of falling farm incomes and commodity prices in cash rents of cropland. I think when you look at the cash rent data, you can see more of that short-run movement. You know, you talk about cropland rents being down at the U.S. about 5.5%. And you look through the states, and that's pretty consistent. Sometimes you think geographically things are different. But Iowa's down about 6%. California's down about 6%. And you don't see those same changes in the underlying ag land value changes. Not yet, anyway. Meyer says, meanwhile, for rental rates, he expects to see more declines as this year wears on and it comes time to renegotiate those rental contracts. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Where do the nation's first fresh apples come from each year? Well, from right here in California. And farmers in the Central Valley say their crop has returned to a typical harvest schedule after two years, which it started unusually early. Gala variety apples are the first to arrive, and farmers in the southern San Joaquin Valley started harvesting them last month. The other main commercial apple varieties grown in California include Granny Smith, Fuji, and Pink Lady. They face challenges this season, and farmers who grow processing tomatoes say their harvest has gotten off to a slow but a good start. Spring rains delayed tomato planting, then heat waves during the growing season further affected the crop. California leads the nation in production of processing tomatoes, which end up in your salsa, ketchup, as well as other tomato products. Bees are always busy, which might fool you into thinking they're mild-mannered creatures. For example, they do work hard to raise their young. When they're completely defenseless as a larva, so developing up as a grub, after the eggs hatch will take about two weeks. And, and obviously they can't control their fates much at that point. So nice, right? When they come out as an adult, they can battle the current queen. The queens have been known to sting each other and actually really battle it out. Wait a minute, what? Yeah, it's Game of Thrones when there's when there's a queen replacement. It turns out that bee relationships are especially fraught between the queen bee mother and her daughter who is set up to supplant her. This is Stephanie Ho, and in this week's Agriculture USA, we'll look at the intricacies of honeybee dynamics. Popular culture is full of references of mothers wanting to get rid of their daughters. In Disney's Snow White, the wicked stepmother queen delivers a dreadful order. Take her far into the forest. Find some secluded lane where she can pick wildflowers. Yes, your majesty. And there, my faithful huntsman, you will kill her. In that movie, the issue is beauty. But as USDA's top bee researcher Jay Evans puts it, with honeybees, it's all about power. 
And if the current queen is still in the hive, she can actually go and mark those developing queens or engage them directly and kill them off. So there is a battle in some cases for who will run the hive in the future. Evans knows what he's talking about because he studies bees out at USDA's Bee Research Lab. And these guys swarming around, are they, are they upset or are they just, no, they're they're just coming and going? Yeah, they're just yeah. super, they're finding something. On a recent visit, I was lucky enough to catch a swarm. Thousands of bees will go as a group with the queen, and they'll wait until they identify a really good new home site. And when they find that home site, they'll move into a hollow tree or maybe another bee box if a beekeeper is around and start fresh with a new colony. A swarm forms when there are two queens in the hive. And they just tolerate each other just long enough to form that swarm and then go off to start the new hive. So they they make sure they have the second queen present and then they will go off and the older queen will actually go off with half of the workers to try to find a new home. In other words... Yep, the older queen gets kicked out and the daughter inherits the hive. The time of year a swarm sets out will affect its chances of survival. For them to make it through the next winter is less than 50% success rate, but it's, um, yeah... Gosh, it depends on the area and the time of year of those swarms. If they do it early enough, it's probably pushing 50% that they will actually establish, find a really good home, and set themselves up for the next year. It is harder for the older queen to leave behind a good home, but there are natural reasons why it's supposed to happen that way. Maybe she's two years old and that's nearing the end of her reproductive life, or by starting off on the riskier avenue, she could actually you know, establish a hive and then be replaced placed by one of her daughters fairly soon too in that new place. So I think the evolutionary idea is that those older queens, they're less valuable to the hive than the brand new ones, so they're more likely to take a risk of that sort. And it is always possible that the queen may not accept her fate. If the old queen is not quite ready to go, and it's not the time when they're making a swarm where she has workers to go with, she can actively kill her daughters to keep from being replaced as the queen. Which is how life in a beehive starts to resemble scenes from Game of Thrones. For example, when the Queen Cersei threatened her daughter-in-law, Marjorie. If you ever call me sister again, I'll have you strangled in your sleep. In the bee world, worker bees play an active role in managing the battles. Every once in a while, either in preparation for a swarm or maybe if she's starting to not lay quite as many eggs, the worker bees in the hive will decide to make some of her offspring into queens, into new queens. So they might pick a handful of eggs and young larvae and raise those up as queens. So they build a little bit bigger cell or structure for those eggs and then they feed them a special food, royal jelly, for the rest of development. Evans points out that workers can be deciders and may even kill off one or the other of the queens. He says they also hedge their bets by initially grooming more than one successor just to be on the safe side. This has been Agriculture USA. I'm Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. As you might imagine, one of the primary concerns of Sacramento County farmers is the Delta Tunnels Project. But besides the effects of diminished water quality in the Delta, Bill Bird of the Sacramento County Farm Bureau Association says there are other concerns of Sacramento area farmers. Cap and trade, which just recently passed at the state capitol, is both good and bad for growers in the Sacramento County region. 
Good is that they will no longer be paying a fire prevention fee, which many of them thought was an illegal tax to begin with. However, their taxes are going to go up in other areas. For most growers, this will not be a net benefit. Uh, however, the California Farm Bureau, which helped negotiate this deal on behalf of the rank and file, the growers in Sacramento County, should be commended for doing the best job that they could in working with the governor to strike the best deal that was possible. There are still other things that we are concerned about, rising costs of labor, the benefits that must be provided to this labor raises the cost of agriculture. It means that 99 cent head of lettuce in your local grocery store may not sell for 99 cents anymore or at your local farmer's market. It might be $2. It might be even more. But that is what the cost of regulation is bringing to us, and that is higher prices at the supermarket and higher prices at your local farmer's market. A very diverse and large group of farmers, consultants, public agencies, and private sector folks participated in a highly successful training session on the benefits of soil management for farming systems down in Five Points recently. It was an overflow crowd. Farmers, researchers were there. So was Jeff Mitchell. Jeff Mitchell is a Cooperative Extension Cropping Systems Specialist out of the Kearney Ag Research and Extension Center. And Jeff, uh, there were some very interesting comments and displays and knowledge shared at that workshop recently down in Five Points, not the least of which that really pinpointed the reasons why there should be more no-till farming and cover cropping and a lot of good reasons to do that with actual farmers showing their actual results. Fred, you're absolutely right. It was really a, a, a nice uh event. We had a, an overflow crowd of uh, nearly 200 people there, and the program that we provided uh, had that mix of farmers, very experienced farmers from throughout the Central Valley, uh, and also researchers that, that were able to showcase a, a very long-term uh, project that has been evaluating these practices, the reduced uh, disturbance, no-till planting system plus the use of off-season winter cover crops and together the the program i think really was successful in distilling three main uh outcomes or three main conclusions first of all that yes no-till is and has been shown to be a viable option for or for valley farms in a number of crops including i'd say uh, sorghum beans the the folks at the field they had a chance to to observe those two crops uh, under no-till and standard tillage production techniques right before their eyes there, and we've had good yields with no-till over the last three or four years for the sorghum and beans there. So the people were able to see that up close and personal. Uh, another another outcome when this came from both the research and the farmers is the the dedicated attention to improving soil biology, if you will. Can you? That provide more uh, feed material through carbon, nitrogen inputs, through cover crops and compost, it feeds and sustains that soil life, the soil biology, and what kinds of benefits can, can you expect to get from that in terms of fertility cycling, uh, in terms of water uh, retention, water infiltration, water cycling, and availability to crops. And then lastly, I think, was the fact that uh, 
these systems really now, again, coming from a lot of the farmer presenters on the program, as well as our own research experience, that they're economically important and they're yielding the good quality crops, they're yielding uh, profitable yields, and uh, the systems now are making sense in terms of, from a number of angles. So that's what we tried to showcase in the uh, training event last week. So the trial has basically four farming systems side by side at your research facility. It's a 320-acre facility. You've got a conventional system with annual soil tillage and no cover crops. Then you have one with conservation agriculture with no tilling whatsoever and annual winter cover crops. You've got no till without the cover crop, and you have conventional tilling with a cover crop. So you have four of those. And you mentioned about water savings. Tell us about the difference in the water-holding capacity capacity of a conventional system versus the one with conservation agriculture. Very good. All right. One of the demonstrations we had there, a couple of them, first of all, was the stability of the soil aggregates, how well the soil stays together and maintains porosity to allow water to infiltrate during those rare winter times when we do get rain down here. Uh, it's very dramatic. Now, we've seen this uh, for a number of uh, training events that we've had. The no-till with cover crop system, particularly, its aggregate stability, the soil aggregation, is just dramatically increased relative to the standard till without cover crops. So by adding organic matter and those glues that uh, that keep the soil uh, aggregated and held together are very important, and that's that's one thing that, that works in favor of increasing water relations in the soil. The other dimension of no-tillage that has impacts and, 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 and relevance for water uh, and water conservation is that when you reduce disturbance, when you reduce tillage and you keep a mulch, a surface mulch that comes from past crop residues and cover crop residues, you reduce that soil temperature, first of all, dramatically. That can be 20 or more degrees on hot summer days. But you also not only cool the soil, but you reduce the amount of water that gets evaporated from that soil surface. And that's something we've quantified now in a number of studies down here. It's not huge, but we've shown that if you if you have reduced disturbance, no-till systems with the surface mulch, that you can actually reduce during a typical summer evapotranspiration period the soil water evaporation loss by about 15%. So that's the equivalent of four or five inches during a normal summer cropping period. So that's that's significant, and that's another potential benefit of these alternative uh, production systems that we've now uh, gotten some data on. And it, it's kind of, there's a, a great other advantage to that water as well, besides less evaporation. Didn't your experiments with cover crops also show more water infiltration deeper into the soil? Yeah, that's what, that's kind of an ongoing thing. And we've been doing that now at a number of farm sites and orchards as well through the, uh, the valley up, uh, all the way up northern California, north Sacramento Valley, all the way down here to, to the Five Points area. But yeah, looking at those trade-offs that are involved with inserting or growing that winter cover crop during that uh, winter window from, let's say, November through the end of February, when there's typically not cropping going on and the fields are normally bare or fallow, can you plant in a deliberate cover crop, gain advantage in terms of capturing uh, carbon, plant biomass, and sunlight energy 
through photosynthesis into plant biomass and, and be feeding the soil with carbon and maybe if it's a legume, uh, atmospherically fixed nitrogen that's going to be in the, the root nodules and, 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 and improve the carbon and nitrogen in those systems. But what are the trade-offs of doing that with respect to water? And what we've been doing the last couple of years is really uh, trying to, in a very comprehensive way, quantify those trade-offs in terms of how much water, you know, is maybe uh, lost through transpiration of that cover crop during that period. But as you point out, can there be benefits of improved or increased infiltration because of improvements in the, in the soil structure and also from, uh, you know, not having the winter raindrops, the pressure that, that they have when they hit the soil surface in destroying and dispersing that soil and creating crust and surface sealing there. So there are a lot of things going on at the same time, but you're, you're right. What we're trying to do is, assess the overall trade-offs of these kinds of alternatives. We're talking with Dr. Jeff Mitchell. He's a cooperative extension cropping system specialist with the University of California. He took part at the recent Cassie soil management training that went on in five points, showing the benefits of no-till and cover cropping. And when we come back, some rather amazing numbers regarding the amount of water saved using no-till and cover cropping. Let's continue our conversation with Dr. Jeff Mitchell. He's a cooperative extension cropping systems specialist with the University of California. He's based down at the Kearney Agricultural Research and Extension Center. And recently they hosted a soil management training that showed at their research center the benefits of no-till and cover cropping on typical farm soils. That included growing sorghum and beans. I love the quote from Scott Park, the farmer from Meridian, who said, when I step on a field and it feels like a road, something is wrong. But if it feels like a marshmallow or sponge, that's a good thing. I agree. I think that was something. Scott Park, by the way, is a farmer, a very experienced farmer up in Meridian, California. And he was the the kickoff speaker on the program down here last week. And and he, he's exactly right. And he, he has seen that and experienced that himself. And I dare say that so have we, that uh, there are, uh, one of the other demonstrations we had at the five points training event was we tried to show and brought people out to look at the soil, a profile in soil pits that were, you know, excavated down to about four feet. And uh, there were only modest differences that we could see, but that, that sponginess or that, that softness of the soil is something that we now, after pretty near 18 years of doing no-till uh, in, in some of these systems down here, there are some very dramatic soil physical changes in the surface few inches that uh, that are, dare I say, pretty remarkable. That And, and, and we've, we've gotten good data on that, too. But I agree that Scott is on to something on, on that observation. One of the d- demonstrations you had, too, was uh, on the tabletop, four-quart jars, 
filled with what uh, a lot of people may remember back from high school or college as a soil experiment to determine if it's sand, silt, or clay. And that is uh, you put a soil sample in a quart jar of water, a little bit of soap, and uh, let it sit for a while. And the uh, soil will separate into different layers. And you had the conventional soil. And that's probably what most people would think of as being healthy soil because it's kind of cloudy and it's separated. You see the sand at the bottom, the silt sort of giving it a cloudy look and and the clay as well but the no-till cover crop soil sample in that jar of water was like a big clump at the top and the water was clear and people may no. look at that and say well that that has to be wrong it's it the cloudy one's the right one no you're right i mean your your description there is, is spot on there and and since the training event last week we've gotten or i've gotten several emails of people they wanted to make sure that they understood exactly that photograph or that that process that they witnessed uh, live on, on the training day there. But you're exactly right. What, what we, what we have now seen, and we've measured this in uh, over a number of recent years there is that the, the standard till, the, the soil that's norm, just conventionally managed with uh, fairly intensive tillage in between crops, when it is exposed to water, uh, it, it tends to fall apart. It disperses and, uh, uh, it, it doesn't hold together. Whereas now the, uh, the no-till with cover crop system, the stability again of those aggregates, that, that aggregate or that little chunk of soil, imagine a two inch, you know, diameter chunk of soil that we put in water, uh, both from no-till and cover crop and also the standard till without cover crop. The no-till with cover crop soil remained in, intact. It remained solid and is an aggregate. And it also, at the end of the another demonstration we had, was to show water infiltration with a rainfall simulator. And what was very dramatic was the standard till without cover crop system, water quickly ran off the surface of the, the soil tray, and it didn't infiltrate very deep into that three or four inch tray there. Whereas in the the no-till with cover crop system, not only was there less runoff uh, from the surface, but there was also greater infiltration to, to depth through the soil profile. So, again, these are very, you know, most people might say, well, they're small, the subtle kinds of changes, but they can really matter in terms of capturing rainfall in the wintertime, making sure that it doesn't go into you know, to the, the riverways and, and with sediment and everything and make sure it, it stays and remains captured in that field there. These can be really important strategies for, uh, uh, you know, retaining water in a farm field there. And I think they're, it's very important that, uh, that we understand these kinds of processes. I, I do want to just reiterate that uh, the, the, the no-till and the emphasis on soil bio biology these have only these conclusions or these outcomes have only come from lots and lots of of time, lots of effort. In fact, some of the farmers mentioned that improving soil quality or soil health isn't going to happen instantaneously. It takes time and it takes dedicated, uh, concerted management that that is going to allow one to get to that ever there. Uh, but these things are not possible. There are farmers, and our own research has shown and seen benefits of deliberate uh, emphasis on reduced disturbance and also on soil biology. And these are the main outcomes, I think, that come from that that uh, that training event. The last thing I'll throw in for your, your listeners and for your audience, Fred, is that 
one of the things that that we've quantified now over over many many years is that even with very very minimal very modest inputs of water to get a winter cover crop going and by that i mean one or two inches just to to start to get the cover crop seed uh growing in the fall uh and uh, and then relying on winter rainfall that uh, over about 16 years we've captured about uh, 27 tons of organic matter in standing cover crop biomass and about 7 or so tons of that is in carbon, the form of the carbon molecule. Not all of that ends up going into the soil, but over time, that is providing more carbon that can be stored and provide benefits into soil and the functions of the soil there. So with with very modest trade-offs in terms of water, and that's what our part of our research is looking at, there can be many, many benefits that could come out of that. So it's a, it's going to be a challenge to to apply a lot of this, but uh, there are people that are, are trying to do that right now. And if people want more information about this, they can visit the CASI website. CASI stands for Conservation Agriculture Systems Innovation, and their website is casi.ucanr.edu. Or you could uh, just uh, do an internet search of the uh, phrase C-A-S-I, Cassie, and uh, the UC link will pop up and you can get a lot more information about no-till and about cover crops and a lot more. Jeff Mitchell, Cooperative Extension Cropping Systems Specialist at down at the Kearney Ag Research and Extension Center. This is exciting stuff. Thank you for your time today. Thank you for it very much. And I invite all of your listeners anytime to come down to the, the field station and we'll We'll be glad to host them for a visit down there. Fred, I want to thank you very much, and uh, we appreciate the chance to share with folks. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour, heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at kste.com.